1: Certainly a lot of important decisions that Californians will be asked to make. There are a total of 11 ballot propositions to consider in addition to a number of statewide offices, including gubernatorial race. And, of course, we also have a race for the United States Senate. Joining me now from the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University is the Dean Pete Peterson. Pete, good to have you back on the show.
2: Great to be with you again, Craig.
1: Good time of the year for people like you because public policy, of course, is your specialty. And and watching so many of these ballot propositions, for starters, that uh, directly impact public policy is something that, well, frankly, all of us as Californians and residents of our uh, great state here need to be not only aware of, but responding to as we go to the polls of the eleven. Talk to me about any major standouts. We may not have time to go through every single one, but um, in terms of the research that you have done, what are some of the ones that Californians really need to be aware of?
2: Well, I think certainly Prop 10 is the one that's getting a lot of attention. This is the local rent control initiative that would essentially repeal uh, an act known as the Costa-Hawkins Rental Housing Act, which would enable and empower Uh, every city uh, and town within California to uh, develop rent control policies. Currently, that's limited to a few cities, um, and this would essentially make it possible for uh, rent control to move
1: statewide. So does this mean that essentially communities across the state could do what Has happened in areas like San Francisco and Berkeley and I think if you talk to anybody that has been a landlord in either of those two cities they say the two worst communities in California to own rental property would be San Francisco or Berkeley because of so many property control measures and rent controls it's almost as if the renters have all the control and landlords have no say so at all.
2: Yes and I happen to live in another one down here in Santa Monica Craig so I've seen that as well and Really what the research shows, and there was actually a great study on this if the listeners want to look it up, it was issued by some uh, academics at Stanford back in February, he looked at the San Francisco housing market and the impact of rental control and really found that it not only drives up the cost of rents because it reduces the amount of uh, the development of uh, rental units and housing and also incentivizes uh, landlords and developers to not only build new uh, condominium units, but also to convert rental units into condominiums. So even though it's called rent control, uh, really what it does over the long term is that it, it reduces the amount of available rental units, thereby driving up rents.
1: And it strikes me that you know fairness and being equal, well, those are important ideals. But there's also the the American ideal of the free marketplace. And yep. as many of the proponents of Proposition Ten are trying to market this and suggesting that, well, you know, this is needed because we need to have some kind of fairness because rents have gotten just out so far out of control. But at the end of the day, isn't it really what the market will bear? And and if the argument stands for this, then why don't we say that we need have to have price controls, which essentially is what it's calling for? on car insurance and food and health care and everything else when we decide we're paying too much.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Craig, but I I would say it's actually we're not letting the market work uh, through how difficult we make it on uh, empowering developers to build uh, any kind of housing, much less rental housing. And so essentially what this measure is a response to is the fact that we've made it so difficult through CEQA and other regulations, both statewide and locally, to build housing and so we've seen, obviously, housing rates, uh, uh, costs increase as well as rental rates increase. Uh, but we think the only response to that is, is not to attack the regulations to make it tough to build, but essentially to create a whole other set of regulations through rent control.
1: So um, the recommendation from your viewpoint on Proposition 10 would be what, a no vote? I am a no on that. All right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. All right. Prop 10, that certainly is one of the major ones. What else yep. on your list? Well, certainly Prop Six, right? This is the uh, the gas tax measure, and
2: uh, a yes vote repeals the gas tax that put another uh, that puts actually because it's in effect now, twelve uh, percent uh, a twelve cent gas tax on every gallon of gas that we buy. Uh, for much of many of us, that's about a dollar twenty to a dollar fifty a fill up more. Uh, We already pay, um, as was recently evaluated, uh, we are sixth in the nation on the level of state taxes on every gallon of gasoline already, and with that extra 12 cents, we move into uh, second place, only behind Pennsylvania, in the amount of gas taxes that we pay. It's right around Sixty cents a gallon, and that's before we even add the federal tax on top of that. Uh, the argument on the pro, on the anti side, to leave the gas tax in place, is that we need the, the funding, which would end up being about five billion dollars a year, to build roads and bridges and uh, infrastructure and uh, busing and other uh, types of uh, people moving uh, transportation. Um, but again, I, I think that uh, Californians are already paying such high taxes uh, already not only on gas, but obviously in income and property and so on, that uh, that this is a, a measure that I think a lot of Californians are wondering whether we need it or not.
1: Well, and certainly you talk about an impact of $5 billion a year in a state whose budget is well north of $100 billion. It's less than 5% of the annual budget. And in addition to the twelve cent per gallon gas tax. There's also about a $50 additional fee that got tacked on to our annual DMV registration uh, fees. I assume most folks probably noticed, Oh, seems like I'm paying a lot more this year than I did last year. That's the reason why. And of course, I don't know about down your way, but here in the Bay Area, the irony is, yeah, we're seeing that money put to work already. They're building additional toll lanes, which means the freeway that I've already paid for with my taxes will now allow me to ride in it, and I can avoid some of the traffic if i'll only decide to pay even more and in some areas it can cost you as much as nine dollars to go just a scant few miles seems to me to be a little bit disingenuous
2: no i again i agree with you on that uh, craig i i think that uh, californians are are taxed so heavily and even in this category again as i said before even without this 12 cents a gallon on top of what we're paying already, we're already sixth in the nation in the amount of gas taxes that we pay at the state level with it. We were in second place. Um, and again, I just don't think we're seeing the bang for the buck and the money that we're paying already. Obviously I think most, uh, commuters are seeing all these SB one signs being put up all over the state as a way of, uh, trying to let people know that their tax dollars are at work, but, Again, this is uh, we're, we're paying very high taxes across the board, and and one of my other real problems with this tax is that it, these kinds of gas taxes always are regressive. They're always hurting those. At the lower end of the economic spectrum. Um, and frankly, those that are driving their Teslas are not really being impacted by it. Yeah, this is very um, true.
1: And, you know, more, moreover, those that are paying mortgages on $1.5 million homes in the Bay Area probably not overly concerned about 12 cents a gallon. So this really hurts the pocketbooks of those that are least capable of paying.
2: Right. And I I know that you see it up in the Bay Area. We certainly do see it down here in Los Angeles that because of the housing costs that we have, we're pushing people in the middle and lower middle class further and further away from where they're working. Now we're going to ramp up their gas taxes to make it more expensive to commute. And so we're kind of hitting them both ways. And I think that really is a window into one of the great policy challenges that we have here in California.
1: Well, you know what? One of these days, uh, apart from this conversation, I would love to get you on the program Pete, to talk about that very topic, because as we see the cost of living increase, and as you point out, folks are being forced to move further and further and further out from the major metropolitan economic hubs like Silicon Valley, like San Francisco. It's going to get to the point where the folks that come in and work at the grocery store and work at the local gas station and do a lot of the the non-skilled labor are going to be commuting, you know, two hours each way to go to work. and, And how can we expect them to ever be able to survive? So there's an important public policy question here that uh, I think deserves spending some good time with. So we'll have to get you back on the program one of these days uh, to talk about that. Okay, what Uh, so on to to summarize Proposition 6 then uh, this would essentially repeal repeal Senate Bill 1 and that would then um, if approved end the portion of additional taxes that we've been paying for uh, not only per gallon but of course on your, uh, your renewal fee. So that would be a yes vote on Proposition 6. What next, Pete?
2: Well, Prop 5, I think, is another big one, and again goes to this issue of housing. This is the property tax transfer initiative, and so for many of your listeners who've lived in their houses for a very long time uh, and maybe as they've become empty nesters have thought about moving uh, even to someplace else here in California, they realize if they've lived in their house for 20 or 25 years, that the penalty that they will pay uh, in property taxes by moving out of where they're at that has been regulated by Prop 13 into a new property that then will bring their property taxes back up to market value actually keeps people in the houses for longer than they really want and so what this initiative would do would allow those uh, who are moving out of houses that are valued high but paying low taxes to transfer some of those benefits into another unit that they're looking to buy and uh, again I think it's something that provides mobility I know people in my own family here in California That are living in houses that they bought 40 years ago. And I know that this, essentially, this property tax penalty that uh, they think about if they're thinking of moving as something that, that prevents them from moving into a place that actually would be a better fit for them.
1: You use uh, the term penalty, and I think that's very apropos here. And uh, let's face it, somebody who years ago bought their house, they've been dutifully paying property taxes all these years. Generally, you're making these decisions when you're of retirement age. And to say to someone who bought a house for 200 today, it's worth, say, 8 and you'd like to move closer to the kids, but then you're looking at this saying, okay, my annual property Property taxes are going to go from uh, you know the, the range of five thousand dollars a year to eleven or twelve thousand dollars a year or more just to to remain on a par for a lot of people on fixed incomes that becomes an absolute impossibility. So suddenly they're literally forced to stay where they're at.
2: That's absolutely right, Craig. And, and you know it, it hurts the state in so many ways. I mean there 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 would be incentives for people. Uh, who've been in houses for a long time to move into smaller units and to cre- and have more of a focus in building smaller units for these populations. But for growing families, you know, this, this really reduces the supply of, uh, of larger residential houses that would be made available. Uh, through a, a an initiative like this. Well,
1: I, certainly I would cause me to think twice if I looked at something like this and thought, well, if I have to move and and pay the uh, the so-called moving penalty, as you suggest, all of a sudden I might wind up paying in property taxes what my house payment has been, and that's pretty severe, and that can be very penalizing to a lot of Californians, particularly uh, the ones on fixed income. So Proposition 5, the recommendation there would be a yes vote. We're going to pause real quick. I want to come back to uh, more of our balance measures, as well as talk about a couple of the top-tier candidates. We're visiting with Pete Peterson. Pete is the dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. We'll take this brief timeout, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: A look at the California ballot measures and some of the uh, important candidates coming up to ballot box near you. We're getting some insight from the dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, Pete Peterson. Pete. Here in the Bay Area, one of the propositions that has an awful lot of money being thrown at it, frankly, from both sides, and that's Proposition 8. Can you give us insight into this? What is this business about if this thing passes, folks that are on dialysis will suddenly be forced to go to emergency rooms? That's the one ad we hear all the time.
2: Right, and and uh, Craig Prop Eight is ha- actually happens to be one of the two initiatives, including Prop Ten, that have just got over hundred million dollars in advertising. Wow. So you're, the reason that you're seeing a lot of it up there is we're seeing a lot of it down here in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the the cut through all of the the gobbledygook around this particular measure, really, what this is about, are, is the SEIU union fighting against the major private sector provider of dialysis services, which is a company called DaVita. DaVita does not happen to be unionized, whereas a lot of the smaller operations are. And uh, as has been shown in many reports about this measure, uh, the SEIU union is the predominant spender on the pro side for this, uh, because they essentially want to force DaVita to unionize uh, the staffing in their clinics. It is very hard, as this initiative proposes, to go into the inner workings of a budget of these companies and somehow force them to de- to uh, devote more of their profits to service. It is a- it is again, like we were talking about in rent control, another uh, uh, cost control measure, a price control measure that rarely, if ever, works.
1: So it sounds like recommendation on prop eight would be no.:
2: Yeah. I'm a no
1: on that. All right. In the few moments that remain, uh, let's spin to the candidates, unless there's another burning proposition you want to address. Uh, one of the areas I'd like to have you comment on is our gubernatorial race.
2: Sure. Well, we have uh, Gavin Newsom, who seems like he's been waiting to be governor for about 15 years. Uh, and then John Cox, who is a uh, businessman out of San Diego, uh, running against him on the Republican side. Uh, I think Newsom is really... Tried to play this as cautiously as possible, only agreeing to one debate uh, that happened up there in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. Um, The polls show that there has been a tightening there over the last month. In fact, one poll that I've seen actually has this within about five points with Newsom leading. It is going to take uh, a major effort on the part of uh, John Cox to win. But I think the fact that this is within at least double digits at this point, shows that voters really do want uh, people to be talking not just about some resistance movement for the state, but really to fix the problems, so many of which uh, we're talking about here that they're looking to initiatives to try to solve.
1: And certainly at the end of the day, bringing a sense of balance with a legislature that has been entirely controlled by Democrats for many, many years. Some see this, too, as an opportunity to kind of put the brakes on a little bit, bring a sense of of balance back into government. I don't know that that's something (laughs) that'll ever fully happen in this state, at least not in my lifetime, but uh, we we can certainly take an opportunity here uh, to support. John Cox and uh, and try to restore some of that balance. It's going to be an interesting uh, senatorial race here. It has been, particularly given the fact that officially the Democrat Party has not been real keen over Dianne Feinstein going back to Washington for another six years.
2: That's absolutely right, Craig. And I think this race is a real window into the inner fracturing that's happening within the California Democratic Party. Obviously, we have uh, state Senator Kevin DeLeon, who's seen really as a, a very progressive candidate, specifically on issues of the environment. Um, he's someone that has uh, been very um, aggressive in his attacks against Senator Feinstein. You're right to say that Senator Feinstein did not even win the endorsement of the state party at their recent convention. And so, again, I think it really shows uh what is going on within that movement which is essentially a break between the old new deal democrat wing of the democratic party and the new bernie sanders wing of the party
1: yeah certainly um some of the old school baby boomer generation uh, hanging on for dear life and uh you can you can certainly see a groundswell of a shift taking place it's as if uh the, the response to the last uh, year and a half under Donald Trump has been the Democrat Party to go even further in yeah. the way out left direction, which seems to be a little bit ironic, uh, but it won't be the first time they didn't read the tea leaves very accurately.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And I, again, I, I think that this really this split that we're seeing in the party is happening nationally. But to see it uh, Democrat versus Democrat, as we're seeing in this U.S. Senate race, I think really highlights this division between the younger, uh, more aggressive, progressive part of the wing of the Democratic Party and those that are uh, more on the moderate side. Increasingly, there, there are not many places for moderate Democrats to support.
1: Our friends at the California Family Council have a voter guide available anywhere else that you can recommend listeners to go to to get more information.
2: I think that's a great spot. Also, I think another great news organization that's nonpartisan is a, uh, is at CalMatters. dot org. They've got a great write up on the different initiatives without endorsements, just explaining them from both sides of the aisle.
1: All right, calmatters.org, dot org, or you can go to CaliforniaFamily. dot org. CaliforniaFamily. Dot org. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, and uh, more information about his work and that great organization online at pepperdine.edu. Thanks, Pete, for the time, and we'll uh, we'll circle back and talk about some more of these deep public policy issues. like to get in there maybe spend a whole hour with you one of these days.
2: I'll look forward to it, Craig.
1: All right, my friend, take care. Pete Peterson, again with Pepperdine University, on the web at pepperdine.edu. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: There are a number of important ballot measures as we've been discussing on the program and of course some key uh, races across the state that um, not only address statewide elections for positions such as uh, Governor of California and then of course we have uh, all of the House seats up for grabs. Senator Dianne Feinstein in the Political battle, certainly for her life, up against kevin de leon so it 's a um, it 's an interesting race this year, much going on, and uh, I want to pivot if I can to uh, an issue and one of the candidates in California um, running for California state controller, a job that it's one of those unsung jobs you don't hear a lot about. I mean, it's kind of we vote for governor and you know what the governor does. The lieutenant governor, not quite sure, except he, he gets in trouble when the governor's not in town. We know that much. And a controller. What exactly does the controller do? Well, the controller controller holds the purse strings. And, in fact, the controller can very much help set the tone and tenor for not only the way um, money is invested and managed in our state, but, but certainly also um, have uh, a lot to say about the way the state impacts your take-home pay insofar as um, taxes and things of this sort. One of the candidates running for California State Controller is my first guest tonight. He is Konstantinos Roditis. He is a candidate for California State Controller. And Konstantinos, uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So tell us a bit first, uh, and I know that you're also uh, very much involved with Proposition 6, and I want to get to that in a moment. But let's talk first about um, your efforts to seek election For controller of California. Now, the incumbent, Betty Yee, of course, is running for re-election as well. One of the big concerns, of course, in a state like California, where we are not only so heavily taxed, but also so heavily spend, is that there doesn't seem to be many on the Democratic side of the equation that want to um, temper either of those, either taxing or spending. In fact, we've seen California state legislature even rub their hands together and say, aha, the president has given a big tax decrease for corporations across America. Let's see if we can't take advantage of all that money. So tell me, what is the motivation for you running as controller for the state of California?
3: Well, the motivation is that we have to realize that in California, we have an elective controller. In most states, there are appointed, and I believe that specifically it's elected, is because they're supposed to be the chief taxpayer watchdog. They're supposed to be the ones who are watching out for the taxpayer to root out corruption, waste, fraud, and abuse, and to give good advice, sound fiscal responsibility to the legislature and to the governor. And that's not what we don't see. It's, uh, you know, the controller has the independent audit authority and can withhold funding from anything that doesn't comply with state law. Uh, But you don't see any pushback from the controller's office on anything. Uh, For instance, on day one, I will uh, hold payment, stop payment, defund the high-speed rail project because I would be legally allowed to as controller. Because the high-speed rail is unlawful. It is in clear violation of Prop 1A and the mandates that were set forth by the voters. And so on day one, I'll get to save taxpayers $100 billion by canceling that project.
1: I like the sound of that already. Does it also fall to your position to be able to engage in something that I know way back in the day, uh, then, then uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about wanting to go in and engage in audits of a variety of levels of departments within our state. That never quite happened. But does the position of controller have the authority to do that?
3: Yes, anything that uses state funding. So even uh, they've expanded, actually, the auditing authority, of the controller, even uh, to have greater on city levels. If you remember the city of Bell or on Compton, uh, usually they come in after the fact, after a scandal has been broken. Um, and then they start auditing instead of just doing a good job and making sure that government's running well. But, yes. Uh, state programs, anything that uses state money, there's certain restrictions, obviously, but yes, I could come in there and audit programs and make sure that everything's on the up and up.
1: Folks want to get more information about your candidacy, they can go online. It's simply roditis4controller.com. That's R-O-D-I-T-I-S, roditis4controller.com. One of the other campaigns that you were heavily involved with is Proposition 6, the gasoline tax relief. This has kind of slipped in, another one of those, hey, let's vote it in. Maybe nobody will notice until we uh, all showed up at the gas pump and went, wow, what happened here? And, of course, California is paying some of the highest gasoline tax taxes in our state. Not only did the legislature increase the cost per gallon of gasoline, most importantly, impacting people who can least afford to pay that, folks that typically have to commute a long distance because they can't afford to live where they work, but then, too, they also secretly added in a little bit of an increase in the registration tax. Tell us more about this proposition and what does it do?
3: Okay. Well, the first thing to to know is when you read your ballot statement, it's a complete lie. Uh, The Attorney General Xavier Becerra basically uh, took into the sense uh, union poll data, how can we scare voters and trick them and absolutely change the ballot title. This does not remove any fees on road repairs. Um, most of the gas tax does not go towards road repair, it never has, it never will. It's, uh, it's basically the politician slush fund. So what they ended up doing is they ended up raising our uh, gas tax and vehicle registration fees uh, even after they promised that they wouldn't do so without a vote of the people. So what this does, it repeals the gas tax increase, and it repeals the car tax increase, and then also sets a constitutional amendment that they can never raise our taxes again without our permission for the car and gas tax. So that's what a yes on six will do, it'll repeal the gas and car tax and make a constitutional amendment to prevent them from ever raising our taxes again. But here's actually the scariest part that a lot of people don't know about SD-1, the gas tax increase. Did you know that your taxes are going back up in July of 2019?
1: <laughs> no big surprise there now, is there? Yep.
3: yep. Every year the tax will go up. So it's going to be about, it'll go up from before we're the fourth highest to the second highest gas tax now. We're just below Pennsylvania and we're going to go ahead and be the top one in july when we get the increase of that 19 and 5 cents
1: see when the um, governor said so, he wanted california to be number one i thought that meant in you know production or in productivity or in uh uh, uh gross domestic product clearly though he must have meant in taxation
3: yeah and uh poverty because we have the highest poverty in the entire country one out of five californians live in poverty and 47 percent uh, consider themselves working poor so this tax hurts uh, the poor and working class the most. Uh, from the normal family of four with typical driving with two cars, it's $650 a year. Uh, and then the super commuters, the people who drive 45 minutes each way to work, uh, it would be about $800. So depending on how much you obviously drive or how many products you buy, because, you know, there's a tax on diesel uh, that went up about 20 cents per gallon plus an excise tax. And so, uh, you know, the the cost will continually go up every single year around July. You're going to get a uh, tax increase upon tax increase. It's it's never ending because uh, they don't actually want to have this discussion again. They go, we snuck it in here. We got it good. We're trying to scare you with our $50 million uh, ad buy and saying bridges and everything else are, and roads are going to fall apart. You're going to die. You know, I love the one of the flyers that they sent out, which I found hilarious Was the firefighter, like, we must protect the roads. and." The guy got $350,000 last year in his salary and will collect millions of dollars in pension. And so, uh, you know, they, of course, want the gas tax to continue to go up because they need to fund our unfunded pension liability. And they've been rating the gas tax uh, for years. And so there is no difference. This is just uh, a money grab from them.
1: And sadly, this has been a political football for many, many years uh, to to walk folks back. Gray Davis was the first one who did a significant increase on the registration fee. And then, of course, when he was followed, actually kicked out of office uh, and in a very embarrassing fashion as well. When he left office in disgrace, followed by uh, then Arnold Schwarzenegger, he immediately reduced uh, the registration fee and now, of course, it's been brought yet back up again, and then, of course, this ongoing ping-pong deal with gasoline taxes here, we pay some of the highest rates in the union even just for the simple refineries because of all the tight air control restrictions that we have. And you've, if you've watched the, the price at the pump, you know that when they put the uh, the additive in for summer fuel, the price goes up, and then when they say, well, winter comes, we take it out, so the price goes up. And they do this every single year, and as Constantinos just mentioned the real penalty here are on poor people. The real penalty here is for the person who can't afford to live within uh, you know, walking distance or barting um, convenience to uh, work and so they have to drive a car and in doing so they are penalized the most. Believe me, the individual tooling around town in the Tesla doesn't care and doesn't pay the gasoline tax anyway. So for the rest of us and to avoid confusion on this Measure. Um, if you want lower taxes for gasoline, vote yes on six. Let's put it that way because they've written it in a very confusing fashion. So the easiest way to think of this is if you want lower gas taxes, if you want a reduction in the amount of tax that you pay for your vehicle registration, then vote yes on Proposition 6. More details on the candidacy for California State Controller. Online at rodidis4controller.com. And our thanks to Constantinos Rodidis for being with us tonight on this segment of Lifeline. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So as we continue on, we're going to meet a candidate for school boards, specifically for the Fremont Unified School District. Larry Sweeney, in fact, has been a seated member on the board for about 16 years now, 35-year-long Fremont area resident. And while you say, well, Craig, my goodness, you're focusing on a local school board? Really? Well, i got to tell you, many of our future leaders start at that level. They might begin at the local school board, move on to city council, move on to mayor, move on to an assembly seat before you know it, their governor or a member of the California um, group that heads off to Washington, D.C. So the, these are these are key pivotal roles, both in terms of sort of the latter, uh, so to speak, uh, of politics. But as in Larry's case, I think you'll find that his commitment really is to local education, therefore the reason why he has been on the board for as many years as he has and and now running for his fifth term. And it's a big job and a critical one in Fremont because... Fremont, you know that quiet little sleepy community where Tesla is located, yeah, that same Fremont has been sort of a lightning rod for controversy. There's been everything from measures by the California I mean the be uh, Fremont City council to say that we're we're a little busy, so the police department, while they still charge a fee to have a alarm permit for your property or your home, your business, but the Fremont police will no longer respond to alarm calls what. Or, worse yet, more than twice now has Fremont been the center of attention, and not in a good way, because of controversial curricula within public classrooms. The city of Fremont is nothing to shake a stick at. From an educational standpoint, they have some 42 schools, more than 34,000 students, a massive budget, 3,000 employees. They are looked at as a trendsetter in many ways. But uh, most recently, um, some of the controversy surrounding the section education program has been a trendsetter in a wrong direction. Candidate for Fremont Unified School District and board member Larry Sweeney joins us now. Larry, thank you for taking some time to be with us today. What about this particular proposal? that was being considered by the board um, and eventually voted against, but was up for uh, such heated debate in the midpoint of this year. What was it about this particular curricula that disturbed you?
4: Well, well, Craig, first of all, thank you very much for extending me this opportunity. Uh, As as you mentioned with your your very detailed introduction, I have been on the board for 16 years. And in that time, you get to see some of the same things, very cyclical happening over and over again. And though you, Fremont is uh, its own community, we're seeing the same type of issue played out throughout the country. So, what's happening with our uh, with our sex ed, if you will, is California requires that we teach sex education in seventh grade and ninth grade. Fremont also allows sex education to be taught in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. It's uh, opt out, so if the parents do not want to participate, they don't have to participate. And they know ahead of time, and they they fill out a form, and their children are not exposed to that uh, education if they don't want them to be. However, one of the things that uh, has has come up in the last couple of years because of the Healthy uh, uh, Youth Act and these other things that are now part of the uh, law is we were told that our uh, curriculum for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade is non-compliant with state law. So we had to take some time to try and make it compliant. Uh, a lot of your listeners might not know that just as California proposes and has a curriculum for science and math and English and all the subjects for all the school districts to choose from, many, many different uh, categories and programs to choose from. The state does not offer curriculum to choose from on sex education. So that's up to every individual school district. Now, we've taken a a poll for, for many years. We've taken these polls, and the majority of families do want to have the option to have sex education taught in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade well what is incumbent upon us is that when the curriculum comes before the board it should face the same process as all curriculum faces in other words when we choose curriculum for math or history or science it goes through a process and this did not this particular curriculum is called the three r's now normally what we do when we have curriculum is we take a couple of different options a couple of different programs so that would be the options for the community and the teachers break into groups and they pilot the curriculum they meet a couple of times and they go back and forth assessing the strengths and weaknesses of each program. Uh this is in preparation to eventually make a recommendation to the board. Part of the process that engages the community and keeps everything transparent and accountable. Fremont has like many uh, school districts a curriculum and instruction committee which is made up of parents and teachers and community members and this is the venue where the public can see the discussion and have their input. Well, when this particular curriculum came before the curriculum and instruction committee remember there were no options there was just this one uh, three r's the uh, staff told the curriculum and instruction committee that the board had already approved this which we had not and that the uh, uh, the curriculum and instruction committee would not have the opportunity to even discuss it or make a recommendation to the board it's a complete end run to give, uh, around the process what this did as you were mentioning in the beginning is it caused hundreds of people to show up at board meetings? Uh, we even had one board meeting just dedicated solely to this topic, and went to almost three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, thousands of people sign a petition that they wanted more choices than just the three R's. The district did not move, uh, did not budge. And speaker after speaker after speaker said we need to look at other options. We we were not allowed to look at other options. And many of the speakers, and rightly so, said. There need to be other components that are included in this curriculum, components like nutrition or, or mental health or bullying or suicide prevention or self-image, you know, resources for students to use and to access as they're exposed to this information. Additionally, the opt-out portion, where the parents sign a slip to say that their child is not to be exposed to this curriculum, is a very valuable component, mostly because we need parents to have their choices honored and respected. So what happened, to make a, a long story short, is the district never swayed and it was just three r's with none of these additions and no other type of uh, option to choose from so it was extremely contentious so the board voted um three to two we have a five member award that we would not have uh sex education in fourth fifth and sixth grade this year until we could come back with the curriculum that met the criteria this caused the as you say and uh two members of the board asked that it be brought back and when it was brought back for a second vote, one of the board members who was agreement with uh, not having it until it complied with the committee's wishes, switched her vote. So, the, with, the, with the condition that uh, fourth grade would be left out, but for this year, fifth and sixth grade would be included, and we would just use three R's. So I, you can see by the way I'm setting all this up, that uh, a lot of people, perhaps the majority of people, were not satisfied with the way this rolled out. Um, there's a there's another component to this too that's that's very very sad and I, it, it really illustrates the importance of the opt out component. Uh, one of the parents informed me that her daughter in an elementary school, either in fifth or sixth grade, um, was in the the teacher was adamant that the teacher wanted to let these girls in her class know things that the teacher wanted them to know. So what the teacher did is she excused the boys from the class. They went out in the playground unsupervised and she locked the door and she proceeded to tell those girls who were in that class what she wanted to tell them, about 15 minutes worth. Two of the girls were crying, and at least four of the girls had those opt-out permission slips already in the, the principal's office, which meant they were not to be exposed to any of this. Well, that parent was livid. She called me later that afternoon when her daughter came home and told her what happened, and I met with her, and the parent wanted to bring her daughter to that board meeting that night. And I was really afraid. I was afraid that if this parent and her daughter, and they were willing to do it, stood up in front of the community, there'd be a tremendous amount of support, but we also don't know if there'd be retaliation or something that would follow this family for the the rest of their career at Fremont. So I asked them, could I represent your your view, your story, and that would protect you? And they said, yes. So I did. And I have to tell you, I received very little support from the people who were very three R's. For that story and what that story indicates is when we have a process we have to honor the parents wishes so you can see why it was contentious from the very start that it didn't follow the process it didn't have options they didn't add what the community wanted these other components and it didn't honor the opt-out so that is where we're, at. we're left out right now is we have a committee they're going to look at all the different curriculum and they're going to make a recommendation to the board sometime in february i believe and I'm hoping that the recommendations will be a couple of different options to choose from that take into consideration all these community wishes.
1: And it sounds as if there might be one or two members of that board who need to be reminded that they're elected to represent parents and to make decisions in the best interest of the children, not to promote personal agendas. And at the end of the day, if the parents are against it, guess what? <laughs> you got to vote against it i mean it, it just it 's just simple sense that the district does not own kids, even though sometimes they like to act that they do. And I know that that certainly is problematic, and I have I've a long history of um, exchanging uh, barbs with the California Teachers Association for this very same topic, that if there is a process in place, the process has to be respected because the parents own the kids, or they're the parents' children, I should say, uh, not that of the districts or the teachers. And at the end of the day, we all pay the taxes.
4: You're exactly right. You're, you know, Craig, you, c- you couldn't be more correct because the parents, uh, especially when they're being so vocal, and they're vocal on both sides, and I don't um, uh, disregard the intent of the people who who want the three R's curriculum, but all sides have to see that we have to offer offer options, and we have to find a better solution than that which was presented to us. Uh, One of the other things, and it kind of goes hand-in-hand with this, it's not exactly on sex education, but what has also been promoted is the uh, district wants to have just one pathway for science in high school and one pathway for math in high school, and it's a little different than the traditional pathways. So what myself and two other board members did was we said we want to offer both pathways, we want to offer a choice so that parents and students have a choice, because the traditional pathway, a little bit more robust, and when these children are deciding do they want to go to college, do they want to compete for those really limited slots in college, they want to be able to say, look, I took these classes, I took these AP classes. The district said, no, it should just be one-size-fits-all, and again, we were very much promoting choice. Well, at the end of the day, again, three-two votes on both of these, the parents were allowed to have choice, and the proof is in the pudding that this was the first year that we've had this choice, and 60% of the students chose the traditional pathway. And I think this kind of goes hand-in-hand with the sex education, with this one-size-fits-all that everybody uh, has to do what they're told instead of listening to the input. So it's a top-down decision-making instead of listening to what the people have to say and making their decision
1: based on that. Well, and you're helping me to, uh, unwittingly so perhaps, Larry, you're helping to, to uh, sort of underscore the point that I've been making on this program uh, for the last many weeks, and, and certainly emphasizing both yesterday and today, and that is how critically important it is that we all be involved in the electoral process, get out the vote, because the decisions that we make Make will impact the future for many, many generations, whether you're talking about the the Congress that you vote for and the president that leads to uh, choices on the United States Supreme Court, down to, yes, even the lowly school board that has the power to make decisions that may help to support what values you teach your children at home or to tear them asunder. And so um, I want to urge you to, um, particularly for those residents in the city of Fremont, to uh, to recognize this. To make sure that you show up. Um, Larry, if folks want to find out more about your uh, candidacy, the values that you stand for, uh, where can they get more information about your campaign?
4: Thank you, Craig. It's real easy. It's www.larrysweeney.com.
1: Easy to remember. Larry Sweeney, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y. Dot com. Well, Larry, we appreciate uh, not only your willingness to stand up on behalf of the rights of parents and children, uh, but to also uh, join us tonight to share some of your insights. And we wish you success with your campaign for, uh, once again, uh, renewing your seat on the Fremont School Board. It's a, it, See how this came down? One vote. One vote, friends. That's often how tight and critical it is. So if you think your vote doesn't matter, just imagine how different things would be. The Fremont Unified School District if Larry Sweeney's vote didn't matter. But it does, and so does yours. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.